Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill where we go back, back to, to the, the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com through our new podcast feed, everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one you need to go to and if you want to subscribe, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Low Frequency Gamma Wave. Again, another hint for what book we are doing this week in Marvel March. Every Sunday this month, we are doing a Marvel book because we don't get a lot of Marvel books. So we, Chris really went out and did a solicitation for some uh, Marvels. And we're going to, hopefully this will stir up some more, uh, you know, people picking some more Marvel books for the future. This one was picked by Brandon Murray. He is a a co-host of the Marvel Minute on the WeirdScienceDCComics.com podcast. So it's very appropriate that the guy doing the marvel minute picked the marvel book and the one that he picked is uh one that i actually knew which is the incredible hulk number 181 from november 1974 written by len ween art by herb trimpy jack abel glennis ween who at that time was married to len ween they divorced and she returned to her maiden name oliver in 1985 just thank you for including that because i never knew the timeline (laughs) just so you know yeah uh i got to a lot of len ween's personal affairs uh, over over the research for this cover price for this was 25 cents and it it, it hasn't gone up in value much so no, you, could no. Probably, you could probably get it for like what a buck yeah something like that no, you know it's it's you know chris and i have had these discussions about the books that are <laughs> valuable this one always comes up this is one if the, if you see this iconic cover in your collection you got something folks got something special yeah yep. <laughs> Now, before we go into the issue, let's do our uh, our due diligent background check here. We're going to start with uh, Len Wein. He was born uh, June 12th, 1948, in New York City. Uh, we got a quote from him uh, from a 2003 interview where he recalled, I was a very sickly kid. While I was in the hospital at age seven, my dad brought me a stack of comic books to keep me occupied, and I was hooked. When my eighth grade art teacher, Mr. Smedley, told me he thought I had actual art talent, I decided to devote all my efforts in that direction in the hope that I might someday get into the comics biz. And he did. Mm-hmm. Now, Len Wein was friends with Marv Wolfman, and in about, in about once a month in the early 60s, they'd head to the uh, DC Comics offices in Manhattan in order to, you know, maybe shake some hands, maybe meet some people they would uh, hope, hopefully get jobs from eventually, or just, you know, make nuisances of themselves <laughs> but, <laughs> to, uh, to the staffers. Uh, Wolfman was a, uh, a fanzine producer. He, uh, he wrote a fanzine, and Len Wein contributed to it. Uh, eventually, they created comic book stories and pitched them to DC Editorial. Uh, Wolfman would write, and Wein would draw, which was his uh, primary comic book intention at the time. Uh, in a 2008 interview, Wein said his origins as an artist have helped him to, quote, describe art to an artist so that I can see it all in my own head, quote. He claimed that he claimed he uh, used to have artists, especially at DC, guys like uh, Irv Novick and a few of the others who would come into the office waiting for the next assignment to ask editor Julie Schwartz, do you have any Len Wein scripts lying around? He's always easy to draw. So he always made sure that what he what, what he put on paper was uh, easily yeah. uh, translated into art. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, DC editor Joe Orlando hired both Wolfman and Wein as freelance writers. That's right. And uh, Ween's first professional comic story was Eye of the Beholder. In DC's Teen Titans, number 18, cover dated December 1968. For this story, he and Wolfman co-created Red Star, the first official Russian superhero in the DC universe. Neil Adams was called upon to rewrite and redraw a Teen Titans story 
Titans Fit the Battle of Jericho, which had been written by Whedon Wolfman, and it would have introduced DC's first African-American superhero, but it was rejected by the publisher, Carmen Infantino, at the time. Uh, the revised story appeared in Teen Titans number 20, March to April 1969. I think we mentioned that in one of our Teen Titans episodes also. Just I think so. Interesting what might have been type of story. Later that year, Ween was writing mystery stories for anthology titles like DC's The House of Secrets and Marvel's Tower of Shadows and Chamber of Darkness. He additionally began writing for DC's romance comic Secret Hearts and the company's toy line tie-in Hot Wheels. You ever see a Hot Wheels comic out there? I just bought one. Wow. Uh, yeah, we got. I got. I got to. I got to read that one uh, when when you get it up. Yep. <laughs> Len Wein has also also found work writing for Skywall Publications, horror comics magazines, Nightmare and Psycho, and its short-lived Western comic books, The Bravados and the Sundance Kid, and also found work writing for Gold Keys, Mod Wheels, Boris Karloff, Tales of Mystery, the toy line tie-in, Microbots. And the TV series tie-in Star Trek End the the Twilight Zone. Mm. Point being, he was getting a lot of writing work in the seventies. Okay, he was. I don't think he was starving at that moment. No, he was. Uh, he was, he, uh, he might have been starving for sleep. <laughs> Maybe it sounds this like is it. a lot of yeah, work. A lot of work. <laughs> now, uh, Ween's first superhero work from Marvel was a one-off story in Daredevil. It was issue number seventy-one from December nineteen seventy. It was co-written by staff writer editor Roy Thomas. It was called If a, If an I Offend Thee, but uh, Thomas is the only one that got a writing credit. Uh, Ween later began scripting sporadic issues of such DC superhero titles as Adventure Comics, which was, uh, you know, the, that was the one that, like, would feature Supergirl, maybe Zatanna. Mm, Legion uh, you know, would be in there early Legion on. And, yeah. Sure. Uh, also uh, for The Flash and Superman. He continued to write anthology anthological mystery <laughs> that's a that's a heck of a word along with uh, the well-received stories for a semi anthological title <laughs> the phantom stranger this is issues 14 through 26 uh cover dates august 71 through september 73 a lot uh, of people think consider this to be a definitive phantom stranger also the way that len ween wrote him is really more or less the, a lot of the way that he was been carried into the future uh, mm-hmm. it definitely the way Dio wrote him in the new 52, but even sure. somewhat in the 80s, it's sort of, this is sort of a little defining, even though it's not that long, it's not that short either, it's like a full year of Phantom Stranger stories, but, uh, anyway, I just wanted to was throw, this, was throw this it out Was when they introduced, uh, the, uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, bits to him? I believe so, but I'm not okay. positive that's when it was. That was always very interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, now, uh... This one we might have heard of. Uh, Ween and artist Bernie Wrightson created the horror character Swamp Thing. Mm. He would first appear in uh, House of Secrets number 92. That was cover date July 1971. Believe it or not, this one spun off into a series. <laughs> and, that, and that series lasted from, uh, the initial series anyway, lasted from 1972 to 1976. Uh, Ween wrote the second story featuring Marvel's analog to Swamp Thing, Man-Thing. Which actually uh, debuted before, just a month before, a, a month, month before, before right? Ween and yeah, Bur- yeah Wrights and Swamp Thing. But anyway, that's that's for another Swamp Thing related <laughs> podcast. Certainly. Uh, now this was uh, written around May of '71, uh, published in June of '72. Uh, this introduced Barbara Morse, and uh, is that that's Mockingbird, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the concept that. Whoever knows fear burns at the man thing's touch, which it feels kind of dirty to say. It does, but that's basically his only <laughs> power. In the first, in the first yeah. one, he's just kind of lumbering and creepy, and this he actually does something. Yes. 
Yeah, he's he's no longer just a passive yeah. <laughs> observer. Now, this story, drawn by Neil Adams, was meant to appear in Savage Tales number two, but instead appeared in the middle of Astonishing Tales number twelve, featuring Kazar. Uh, Marvel 1972, uh, and this was uh, in- concluded in the next issue. Ween wrote, wrote a well-regarded run of Justice League of America. This was issues 100 through 114, uh, cover dates, or cover years anyway, 72 through 74, mostly drawn by the guy who drew most of the Justice League around the time, uh, mm-hmm. Dick Dill. Yep. Uh, in the fall of 1972, Ween and writers Jerry Conway and Steve Englehart created an unofficial crossover between Marvel and DC. Each comic featured Englehart, Conway, and Ween, as well as Ween's first wife, Glynis, interacting with Marvel or DC characters at the Rutland Halloween Parade in Rutland, Vermont. Oh, these were great. That's right, yeah. This is a, you know, this is a common, you can look this up on the internet and see pretty much all of the pertinent panels. Yep. Uh, it's just a cool little, it's, it's was not story involved, but... Just kind of a little connective tissue between these two publishers. Yeah, neat little in-jokes, yeah. So, uh, beginning in Amazing Adventures number 16, the story continued in Justice League of America number 103 and concluded in Thor number 207. Engelhardt explained in 2010, it certainly seemed like a radical concept and we knew we had to be subtle. And each story had to stand on its own, but we really worked it out. It's really worthwhile to read those stories back to back to back. It didn't matter to us that one was at DC and two were at Marvel. I think it was us being creative, thinking what would be really cool to do. Now, believe it or not, at not even 24 years old, I believe, Ween succeeded Roy Thomas as editor-in-chief of Marvel's Color Comics line in 1974, staying a little over a year before handing the reins to Wolfman, who was the same age. Yep. (laughs) Uh, And he stayed for about a year. That's also, we'll definitely want to talk about that another time. Sure. Uh, But Ween remained at Marvel as a writer, and Ween had short runs on such titles as... The Defenders and Brother Voodoo, and lengthy runs on Marvel Team-Up, The Amazing Spider-Man, Thor, Fantastic Four, and The Incredible Hulk. And now let's hop over to the art side. We got Herb Trimp. He was born uh, May 26, 1939 in Peekskill, New York. He uh, commuted to New York City for three years to attend the uh, School of Visual Arts, like so many of uh, the artists we've discussed on the show. Uh, now, in 2002, he recalled that uh, one of his instructors and a longtime comic artist uh, himself, uh, Tom Gill, needed a student to, quote, ink his backgrounds and stuff. Uh, uh, Herb would say that that's how he started at Dell Comics, mostly doing westerns and also licensed books, like the adaptation of the movie Journey to the Center of the Earth. Uh, he then enlisted in the uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force. Uh, he was there from 1962 to 1966. He says, I was a weatherman, and our unit was on loan, you might say, to the Army. We supplied aviation weather support to the 1st Air Cavalry Division based in the Central Highlands in Vietnam. They used helicopters extensively to move troops around. Uh, Upon his discharge in October 1966, he learned that fellow SVA classmate John Verputin Verporton. Verporton? <laughs> I was I was hoping you'd say Verputin. <laughs> I had to look at that a few times. Yeah. Uh, anywho, this fellow was working at Marvel Comics uh, in, in Marvel Comics production department. In 2002, her recalled, uh, he said they were hiring freelance people, and I should come up to the office and show my work to Saul Brodsky, who was Stan Lee's right hand man at the time. I was just preparing to put some material together and go to DC and Charlton when I got a uh, call from Saul. Brodsky, who was production chief. He said they needed somebody on staff in the production department to run a new photostat machine they just bought and to do some production work. 
I would primarily run the stat machine and wouldn't be seated at a desk, but I would be able to pick up some freelance penciling and inking. This kind of opened the door. The staff job didn't pay much by today's standards. I think it started at $135 a week, which wasn't as low as it sounds. Remember, this was 1966, and that was a fairly good entry-level salary. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really too horrible. My, uh, no. my dad talks about his first apartment in Brooklyn was $450 a month. Oh, wow. Uh, for a huge, a huge apartment. So, you know, think of it that way. And that was, that would, you know, some years after this. But anyway... It says here uh, for the uh, for our old inflation calendar calculator here it says that's 135 in 1966 is $1,004.12 in 2016. Yeah, oh, that's what we call a livable wage, you know. Absolutely. Uh, you can do a lot worse than that, and a lot of people do. Anyway. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> Herb uh, joined the Marvel production staff, and this was announced in uh, the bullpen bulletins of Marvel Comics, cover dated June 1967. These were the house, you know, announcement organ that they would have in the book. Um, while operating the photostat camera in the Marvel offices, Tripp did freelance inking for Marvel and made his professional penciling debut with two, two kid cult western stories in Kid Cult Outlaw number 134 and 135, May and July 1967. Shortly thereafter, Tripp and writer Gary Friedrich created Marvel's World War I aviator hero, the Phantom Eagle, in Marvel Superheroes number 16, September 1968. His brother Mike Trimp inked an Ant-Man story that Trimp penciled in Marvel feature number six, November 1972, and from what I know, that was some of his only Marvel work, his brothers. Mm. Beginning with pencil finishes over Marie Severin layouts in The Incredible Hulk, volume two, number 106, that was August 1968, Herb went on to draw the character for a virtually unbroken run of over seven years, throughout issue, through issue number 142 in August 1971, and then again from 145 to 193, that was November 1971 to November 1975. He also did nearly every cover for Hulk Annual through the 1970s and early 1980s. Drew the cover Rolling Stone magazine number 91, September 16, 1971, which was a picture of the Hulk. So he was mm. sort of connected to the to the characters, <laughs> is what we're seeing here. They, he was the Hulk artist for quite a while. Uh, under the Marvel method of writer-artist collaboration that we've discussed before, Trimp, like other Marvel artists at the time, was the uncredited co-plotter of most of his stories, a working arrangement Trimp said that he enjoyed. Mm. Yeah, you don't see you don't see many of the artists of that day complaining about the Marvel method. It seemed like uh, it was in everybody's best interest at the time. I think it, you know, just looking at like a collaborative effort. But you're right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. uh, it it does come up. Obviously, some people saying I did a little more work than I'm credited for. But <laughs> for the most part, people, yeah, it, it happens. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, for the most part, people seem to have uh, enjoyed the arrangement quite a lot. Semi harmonious. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk about uh, our main man. This is the Hulk. Who is the Hulk? Anyway, he first appeared in The Incredible Hulk number one, believe it or not. This was covered in May 1962 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, Stan, this is a, you know, basically Stan was a, they were, they were, he was doing riffs on a, a Dr. Jekyll, Do- Mr. Hyde type of thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, plus a little bit of Frankenstein, if uh, if we're being honest. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Kirby commenting on his influences in drawing the character, he re- recalled the inspiration, the tale of a mother who rescues her child who's trapped beneath a car. You know, that, that surge of adrenaline exactly, where a yeah. mother can lift a car off her, her child. And really, that's pretty much all the Hulk did for like two decades is just lift, <laughs> lift things. It was like, you know, pick things up. He could pick up very <laughs> Heavy things. 
a mountain even. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Now, in the debut, uh, Lee chose gray for the Hulk because he wanted a color that did not suggest any particular ethnic group. Uh, colorist Stan Goldberg, however, had trouble uh, with the gray coloring, which resulted in different shades of gray and even green uh, in that issue. It was uh, very uneven. Yep. And uh, now, after seeing the first published issue, uh, Lee chose to change the skin color to green. I, you know, I've and, only uh, I've only seen, and I assume you two have only ever seen reprints. Sure. And that gray now shows up. They, I think they turned it into sort of a purple gray. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you you can see images of the original comic online, and you see how really it's all over the place. What what, mm-hmm. what he looks like. And the people who read that decided that they had to be canon some way, so right, <laughs> it exactly. would become canon. Yep, yep. Now, uh, his origin is as follows. Uh, during an, during the experimental detonation of a gamma bomb, scientist Bruce Banner saves teenager Rick Jones, who is driven onto the testing field to play his harmonica. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the acoustics Banner, were great on that field. That's what they don't tell you in the comic. Yeah. Yes. Now, Banner pushes Jones into the trench to save him, but he himself is hit by the blast. He absorbs massive amounts of gamma radiation. Uh, He would awaken later, seemingly unscathed, but at night... He transforms into the Incredible Hulk. He had to. Uh, he made himself a like a cave with an unbreakable door that he would lock himself into every night. Yeah. And then uh, when the moon came up and he turned into the Hulk, he couldn't get out. He so couldn't. he would just beat on that door. He would. Yeah. And that's uh, and that's how it was at first. Was it was a day night transformation. Yep. Over the years, it would change into many different. Uh, yeah. The end. Things, people like, like me when I'm angry. Exactly. And, yeah. Get mad or someone pricked him with a pin or you know someone talked bad about his mother or something like that. But anyway, he shot an arrow through his head. <laughs> a lot of a lot of things could could make him Hulk out. Sometimes he would just yeah, anyway. That that's that's story for another day. Just a little bit of what came before issue one eighty one of the Incredible Hulk. Uh, during his normal leaping travails around the U.S., the Hulk finds himself in rural Quebec and is lured to a cave by an ethereal female voice. He enters the cave to find Georges Baptiste and Marie Cartier. Marie knows of the dark arts and endeavors to free her brother Paul of the curse of the Wendigo by magically transferring it into the Hulk's body. What is the curse of the Wendigo? Well, an eight-foot-tall, white-furred monster on two legs has just shown up, and I'm betting that has something to do with it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that leads us right into the issue here. Now, if you've if you have any familiarity with the comics, uh, the comics industry, and you probably do if you listen to this, you know the cover that we're mm-hmm. talking about here. This is a very iconic cover. Got a, a red black a red background. We have Wolverine pounces from uh, burst chains and slashes at the Hulk while the Wendigo is running up from the background, fist raised as if he was shouting, "Hey, I'm here too!" Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> hey guys, I, I want to join in. He really looks, he really looks like he's been left out. He has been. That is a great cover for uh, you know parting a quarter from a kid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the Hulk and the Wendigo are in a three-quarter panel, a uh, profile. Tur- uh, turned toward a pouching, pouncing Wolverine this who wears a blue page. and yellow. Yeah. yeah, this is the. I'm sorry. We open a book up. This is what we got. <laughs> yeah. The Hulk and the Wendigo are in a three-corner profile, turned toward the pouncing Wolverine who wears his semi-familiar blue and yellow bodysuit with exposed arms and yellow cowl. Blades are out. Three per hand. Yeah, and Wolverine says, If you freaks want to tangle with someone, why not try your luck against me? Wolverine goes straight for the Hulk, making a thwash sound for some reason. Heads up, Harrys. The Wolverine's coming through, eh? Huh? Little man attacks Hulk? That's about the size of it, Sonny. The government sent me to take care of you, Hulk, and I'm a gent who always does his job. 
It is the Canadian way, after all. Yeah. Stand still, little man, or Hulk will smash. I think you mean stand still and Hulk will smash, right? Because it's, I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe. What? Sorry. <laughs> think of too many options. I right? know. <laughs> basically, basically, Hulk will smash is what you're telling me. Either way. Sorry, Hulk, but seeing as how you're a boot two feet taller than me and I'm... And how you outweigh me by about a hundred stone. I'll just keep moving, if you please, because moving is the thing I do best. Later in Wolverine's life, there'd be something else he'd claim to be best at. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, for our, uh, you know, imperial, imperial. Yeah. <laughs> one stone is 14 pounds. Yeah. A little more proof of Canadianism, just so you understand. Mm-hmm. And if my voice isn't sending it home, Wolverine is Canadian. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. And you have that, you're wearing that hat with the flaps over your ear. I, right? I had to do a lot to get it. I'm in the role. Yeah, I'm definitely. Yes. The method acting is <laughs> happening method, here. Your method Wolverine. <laughs> yep. uh, Hulk continues. Bah, little man jumps around like a rabbit. Like a Wolverine, if you don't mind, Hulk. And like a Wolverine, I've got claws, forts of diamond hard adamantium, and the power to back them up, eh? Just like a Wolverine. Uh, yeah. All the Wolverines I've ever seen have, have got... They're all adamantium. Yeah, I believe so. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, and just like that, in two pages, you have everything you need to know up front about this brand new, brand spanking character. Yeah, you don't see that anymore. Really, only one page since the first page was a splash. But anyway... Yeah, you know, this would uh, be a 24-issue series. I know, two really. Pages. You know, yeah, you, you know, you'd still be... Nowadays, you'd still be on issue six wondering who, who the hell's Wolverine. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, Wolverine notices that his indestructible claws aren't penetrating the Hulk's gamma-irradiated hide, so he tries them out on Wendigo with a scracked. Wolverine notice, notes that they d- seem to work just fine on the hairy beast, though we don't see any marks or blood. This is comics code approved, kiddies. Like we were saying, could you imagine if this was done today? We'd see, yeah. you know, tears in actual muscle fiber. Yeah, it would be like... Internal a, organs leaking out. It'd be like looking at open-heart surgery, you know what I mean? Yes. It would make it so literal. Uh, startled by the injury, the Wendigo steps back, and Wolverine takes the chance to drop kick him with a tomb. And he utters his uh, immortal <laughs> phrase here: "When D go." So that's your name now, is it, eh? Back at the base, they said you were only a legend, that you didn't exist. Well, when I'm done with you, you won't, Hoser. So here's a good place as any to talk about the so-called Wendigo or Windigo. This is a cannibal monster or evil spirit in Algonquin folklore native to the northern forests of the Atlantic coast and Great Lakes region of both the United States and Canada. Uh, the Wendigo may appear as a monster with some characteristics of a human or as a spirit who has possessed a human being and made them become monstrous, which fairly well actually describes the Marvel version. Pretty much. Yeah. Now, Hulk is put off by the fact that Wolverine is now fighting the Wendigo. He does not want to be forgotten. No. In the caption, it <laughs> says, In case you hadn't noticed, Hulk, the Wolverine already has a sparring partner. And though you might think a battle between an eight-foot monster and a five-foot-five man would be a trifle one-sided, we assure you it is not. Which pretty much spells out that Wolverine is just wailing away, beating <laughs> up the Wendigo pretty good. Uh, the Hulk says, Hulk doesn't understand. First little man fights Hulk. Now he fights Hulk's enemy. But if Hulk's enemy is little man's enemy, then little man is Hulk's friend. Hulk's friend? Yes, little man is Hulk's friend. So Hulk will help little man fight Hulk's enemy. Hulk, Hulk, Hulk. Yeah, eat your heart out of mice and men. <laughs> Lenny got nothing on this guy. <laughs> now, uh, Hulk bounds into Wendigo with a plow and returns a punch that goes scod. 
<laughs> reels from it. He goes, Wendigo is strong, but Hulk and Hulk's friend are stronger. Hulk and Hulk's friend will smash Wendigo. And then Wolverine jumps on the Wendigo's back. Yeah, he thinks to himself, don't understand why that big green brute suddenly thinks I'm his buddy, but it's a little misconception I can make use of. Yeah, so Wolverine's riding piggyback on the Wendigo, and he sort of fi- fi- fiddles with his head area. Quickly, my friend Hulk, while I've got the Wendigo distracted, attack him. Uh, it's good plan, friend. Hulk will do as you say. And so the Hulk grabs the Wendigo and holds him aloft, Hulk style. <laughs> <laughs> and he chucks him against some tall trees with a kroom, uprooting an intri- entire tree stand. Wolverine notes that despite the incredible toss, the Wendigo is still conscious. He pounces on the Wendigo and begins hacking away at its chest. Caption reads, With the savage ferocity of the creature for which he is named, the Wolverine hurls himself upon the furry nightmare. There is a shrill hissing as his adamantium talons flash through the air, a sickening thwuck as they strike, and then, and when Wolverine rises, he rises alone. So Wendigo is down, but not necessarily out. Apparently, the Wendigo is as immortal as the legends say. My talons only rendered him unconscious, eh? <laughs> the Hulk and Wolverine sort of regard each other for a tense moment. It's probably not unlike those times someone brought up Grandpa's mistress at Thanksgiving dinner. I kind of take it mm-hmm. like they're sort of just look, side-eyeballing each other. That's about right, yeah. Uh, then Wolverine strikes with a thwack. All right, Greenskin, it's your turn to take a thrashing. Huh? Yeah, that's Hulk pretty, feels betrayed. That's what Hulk always <laughs> says, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, he feels betrayed, and uh, which is pretty much his usual state of being. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not often he finds friends. That's how we know he's, he's normal, <laughs> as he feels betrayed. Uh, not far from the newly engaged fracas, George, George Baptiste and Marie Cartier lurk in the forest, waiting to pilfer the unconscious Wendigo body from the battlefield. Marie says... The Hulk and the one called Wolverine merely saved us the task of overcoming Paul all by yourselves. Now quickly, while they're still distracted, help me carry Paul's body inside. The sooner things are prepared, the sooner we'll be ready to begin the transformation. In their secret cave, Marie helps Paul the, keeps Paul the Wendigo asleep using the vapors of slumber and reminds the reader of her plan to swap the curse from her brother to the Hulk. Georges ain't feeling it. Melly, I beg you, please reconsider this insanity. What you intend to do is unnatural, unholy, and dangerous, mon ami. <laughs> as the sun rises, <laughs> the Hulk and Wolverine continue to fight, and a secret Canadian military complex nearby is revealed. Inside, some uniformed fellows from, a Royal, from the Royal Canadian Air Force are looking at a map and chatting. Yeah, a, bl- a blonde fellow goes, Any word from Weapon X as of yet, Matthews? Matthews responds, not at the moment, sir. Aerial reconnaissance shows that he's entered the target zone, but so far, well, so far we've heard nothing. And another fellow named Holderidge says, Do you think we did the right thing, sir? I mean, sending them into active combat like that, alone! We wouldn't have sent him if we didn't think he was ready, Holdridge. The government has spent a great deal of time, effort, and money developing the mutant's natural-born speed, strength, and savagery into the skills of the professional warrior. And despite the few kinks still remaining in his psychological makeup, I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah, so what if he cries at the color orange? (laughs) Jeez. A couple of kinks in his makeup, that's fine. Send him out in the field, that's fine. (laughs) 
<laughs> the Wolverine asks for six hours to bring in the Hulk single-handed, and he's going to have those six hours. Then if he fails, and mind you, I don't think he will, then we will take other action. Uh, and he explains that there is a team of Royal Canadian Air Force commandos ready to deploy when Wolverine's time is up. Royal Canadian Air Force commandos. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they have those, but... Right. I don't know if they make them. Yeah. <laughs> now Wolverine and Hulk, they, they continue to fight. Uh, Wolverine is stymied by the Hulk's strength. Hulk is frustrated by Wolverine's agility. Puny little man, Hulk will show you strong. See how easy Hulk lifts big rock? Rock that Hulk will smash you with. Yes, Hulk, I see. But in a second, all that you'll see are a lot of little stars, eh? Huh? Puny little man hits Hulk? Makes Hulk drop rock? The rock uh, does indeed shatter over the Hulk's head with a quam. But there are no little stars. I, you know that. That's, a, that's a disappointment. Yeah. Uh, on a bluff overlooking the action, Marie and Georges jo- uh, prepare their unholy rite. Marie says, "Everything's in readiness. The sun is at precisely the right angle, and the breeze is blowing perfectly." Melly, don't do this. As your brother's best friend, I beseech you. And uh, Marie uses the spell of subjugation anyway, and it subjugates the Hulk and Wolverine with an invisible gas. Marie is quite pleased with how things are proceeding. If you will help me bring the brute inside so we can start. Well, what are you waiting for, Georges? I asked you to... Merciful God, Millie. Look, look at the Hulk. The Hulk transforms into Dr. Bruce Banner before their very eyes. This makes no difference, Georges. We can still... No, no, Marie. This is the end of it. It's bad enough to do what you had planned to a simple, mindless monster. But to do it to a man? Never. You owe a debt to my brother. To me. Perhaps I did, Marie. But you take into account the price I've paid with my immortal soul for atrocities. And the debt has been more than repaid. In full. Yeah, I think Marie was thinking more like assisting her in performing the dark arts and less like feeling sorry for yourself for getting mixed up in this stuff, you know? I don't see how that helps her any. Yeah, that's your immortal soul, buddy, not her, uh, you know, labor, but anyway. And I don't know how you can more than repay something in full. It's true, yeah. Once it's paid in full, that's it. After that, you can't go you're more overpaying, than yeah. <laughs> yes. Now, Shul just wanders off to compose himself and to have a think. On a page uh, with two re- nicely rendered vertical panels, he stumbles into their secret hideout, resolved in what he must do. Marie chains a snoozing Wolverine fairly easily, but as she tries to drag Bruce Banner, he changes back into the Hulk, which is less than convenient for her. Yeah, not optimal. No. <laughs> Animal Girl trick Hulk. Knock Hulk out. Hulk thought you were Hulk's friend, but Animal Girl just another puny human. No, Hulk. I am your friend. I am. Bah. Animal Girl lies. Hulk will... Hulk will smash. He turns his attention to the chain-bound Wolverine. You. You are the one Hulk truly hate. Then you give me a few more seconds, eh, to burst these chains, and I'll... Ha! Little man cannot break puny chains. Then Hulk will break little man's chains, and little man with them. And he does the old Hulk hoist and toss. Mm-hmm. Uh, this helps Wolverine bust free of his chains with a scrank. Uh, he goes hurtling straight back at the Hulk, like immediately. There's not, he <laughs> yeah. doesn't even catch his breath. I mean, it, basically, he's free. He's launching he's at the fight. Hulk. Yep. And, and in, while this goes on, she uses a distraction. Marie runs into the secret hideout and sees the Wendigo blocking her way. And so she screams, which makes the Hulk and Wolverine, <laughs> and that makes the the Hulk and Wolverine stop fighting for a brief moment. 
What in Hades was that? Hulk uses the distraction to, you know, punch Wolverine in the head. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Wolverine's special Wolverine sense uh, gives him enough warning to turn Hulk's death blow into a glancing blow that knocks him unconscious again. Yeah, pretty thin skull. These, I mean, he was unconscious like 10 seconds 20 seconds ago. ago. Yeah, what the hell? Anyway. Now, uh, Inside the hideout, the Wendigo is trying to talk to Marie. Marie assumes that it is her brother attempting to speak. I, I don't understand, Paul. What are you trying to tell me? What's happened? The Wendigo points deeper into the cave, and within she sees her brother, back to human form. Turns out that Georges did the rite of transformation on himself, exchanging the curse of the Wendigo with Paul. Or something like that. Something happens. Something equally convenient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul one day becomes the model for brony paper towels. Yeah. Know? He's wearing the right clothes, boy, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, oh, Georges, Georges, the debt you owes us was not, wasn't that strong. No debt could be strong enough to have done this. Why, Georges? Why did you do it? And thus, Georges the Wendigo sheds a single tear. Uh, we have him saying in telepathic Wendigo speak. How did I do this accent again? <laughs> you don't understand, Marie. Perhaps you never will. But I did not do this because I owed a debt. I did it because I loved you. He flips out and punches a wall apart with a scroom before lumbering off away from Paul and Marie. Strolling by the hideout, the Hulk hears Marie crying. And then we have his caption. Too much has happened too quickly for her poor mind to comprehend. Thus, in self-defense, she has retreated into the shelter of madness. I wonder if he thinks every crying baby is insane. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> she's just crying. I mean, she, you know, her best friend just like ran, you know, her brother, you know, she's, she's sad. It's a, give her a minute. Every time you stub your toe, you turn insane for a brief second. The Hulk walks up behind Marie and places a hand on her shoulder for comfort. Caption reads, he is a simple creature, this incredible Hulk. There is so much he doesn't understand. But grief, despair, those are emotions he can recognize, and in his own clumsy way, try to soothe. So they stand together, the monster and the girl, both the victims of circumstances they could not hope to control, and both of them so terribly, terribly alone. And that concludes Hulk number 181 with a typical Marvel, you know, caption exposition sort of <laughs> wind, wind down, uh, handed down from the great Stan Lee, definitely, to uh, all that would follow for at least a little while. Uh, I had a good time with this issue. You oh, know? yeah. I've, I've, I've looked at it before. I, I haven't read this in a number of years. but Long uh, time. You know, one thing I really liked about it was that it was good nuts and bolts of comic book making, right? Certainly, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Wolverine. You really, you, you know, everything about him, including his height, his exact height. Uh, <laughs> exactly. All in the first issue. So, um, yeah, that's not not a bad thing, folks. I think uh, for a quarter, I feel like this was probably a good deal for some eleven-year-old mm -hmm. kid at the time. But of course, we have more to talk about. Uh, sure. And when we when we do come back from our break, we're going to tell you all about. Wolverine, who arguably is a lot more popular than the Hulk. 
Yes. Uh, so <laughs> stay tuned. We have a little uh, break coming up. And when we come back, we'll finish up our bios and do the rest of our thing. When I first created Wolverine, I created him as a Canadian mutant, specifically so that whomever ended up with the assignment of writing the new X-Men book, should it ever occur, would have a Canadian mutant handy if he wanted them. I think from our perspective, what makes Wolverine so attractive is the unpredictability. The, the belief that, that he doesn't give a damn about anybody but himself and spends his whole life proving that's not true. In the first film, there's that great moment where he first meets Rogue and he's uh, going to dump her by the side of the road because she's not what he wants at that moment. He's going to search for something else. And, and, and she goes, well, if you leave me here, where do I go? What do I do? And he says, I don't know. She says, you don't know it or don't care. He says, pick one. <laughs> and I think that kind of describes the character. And yet he spends the rest of the film protecting her and spending the whole thing trying to save her life, even though he's just said to her, I don't care what happens to you. It's not true. At the heart of him, he cares what happens to everybody around him. And welcome back. You just heard uh, Len Wein talking a little bit about the creation of Wolverine, and now we're going to talk a little bit more about Len Wein. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1975, Wayne and artist Dave Cockrum revived the uh, Lee and Kirby mutant superhero team, the X-Men, after a half-decade uh, hiatus where uh, it was pushed into a reprint, yeah. a reprint limbo for a long time. And uh, the original five members were bebopping around the Marvel Universe, uh, not really making too much uh, trouble, but just uh, making sure they're still around. Staying, staying around, staying in the mix, yeah. yeah. Keep, uh, keeping their IPs fresh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, this uh, this relaunch here would uh, reformat the membership, and this was in uh, Giant Size X-Men number one, uh, cover date May 1975. Uh, the pair would create uh, characters Colossus and Thunderbird for the series. Uh, Wolverine, uh, the man we just talked about, also joined the team. Of interest, uh, Nightcrawler and Storm were reworked character designs uh, Dave Cockrum had uh, intended for the Legion of Superheroes. This was going to be one of, like, the Skate 800 Outsiders teams. Yeah. That, uh, that DC uh, had in the uh, in the works, and uh, uh, Storm was a uh, like initially she was like a cat woman, like a, like a li- like a literal cat woman. Oh, and, really? oh, okay, oh, okay. Yeah, not like a not like a Selena Kyle, but like a feline. And let me guess, her name would have been Stormless. Mm. <laughs> weather girl. Yeah, weather girl, something okay. <laughs> weather damsel. Um, Anywho, though, Ween plotted the early new X-Men stories with artist Cockrum. These issues were then scripted uh, as, these are not yet uncanny, as X-Men number 94-95 by Chris Claremont, who subsequently developed the title into one of Marvel's leading, probably the leading franchise for a long time. Uh, In 2009, Claremont said, the history of modern comics would be incredibly different if you took Len Wein's contributions out of the mix. The fact that he doesn't get credit for it half the time is disgraceful. We owe a lot of what we are, certainly on the X-Men, to Len and Dave Cockrum. Wow. Yeah, that's high praise right there, especially coming from a guy not known for giving high praise. (laughs) True fact. Uh, At the end of the 1970s, following a dispute with Marvel management, Ween returned to DC as a writer and an editor. He scripted Batman, and on its first issue of Batman, number 307, January 1979, cover date, he created Wayne Foundation executive Lucius Fox. With artist Marshall Rogers, Ween co-created the third version of the supervillain Clayface in Detective Comics number 478, July-August 1978. He actually had a last panel sneak peek in the previous issue. Uh, this is this is Preston Payne, the eternally melting guy that also melts others. 
But mm. Touch, uh, you know, it's Clayface is a complicated character. Yeah, there's like four or five. There's, there's a, a <laughs> lot of them now, and they and they all do a lot of them do slightly different things too. They, yep. they can they can sometimes you know assume other people's guises or turn themselves into dune buggies. We don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Ween also wrote the Untold Legend of Batman, the first Batman miniseries in 1980. He wrote it with decent. art by. John Byrne. Wow, look at that. Uh, Wasn't so, that the John Byrne one? I think it might have been. Yeah. Uh, Why don't you do a little quick search while I uh, keep yapping? Yeah. Uh, he wrote a DC Marvel crossover between Batman and the Hulk in DC Special Series number 27, fall 1981. And we also collaborated on a great run of Green Lantern with artists Dave Gibbons and Mark Farmer. As editor, he worked on the first 12 limited issue limited series, Camelot 3000, highly regarded, and such yeah. successful series as the new Teen Titans, All-Star Squadron, Batman and the Outsiders, Who's Who in the DC Universe, and Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons acclaimed and highly influential Watchmen. Never heard of it. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, and that was uh, John Byrne. Definitely John DC. Byrne. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Uh, in uh, 1986, Len Wein wrote a revival of the Blue Beetle and dialogued the miniseries Legends over the plot uh, of uh, John Ostrander. Another thing he worked on with Byrne. That's right. That, that, um, that I know for a fact. Yeah. In uh, 1987, Wein scripted the rebooted Wonder Woman series over penciler George Perez's plots. Uh, in the late 80s, Len Wein moved over to the West Coast and served as the editor-in-chief of uh, Disney Comics for three years throughout the early 90s. After leaving Disney, he began writing and story editing, story editing for such animated television series as, as X-Men, Batman, Spider-Man, Street Fighter, Exo Squad, my favorite, Phantom 2040, Godzilla, Pocket Dragon Adventures, Reboot, and War Planet's Shadow Raiders. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's a lot of uh, a lot of TV work for the fella. I mean, and like, uh, it seems like all through the 90s, you know, he just kept... Yeah. I, you know, it's just... You, there's no there generation. no holes no holes in his resume. You notice that? Like it yeah. seems like they're always doing something. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, and then in 2001, he and uh, his old friend Wolfman uh, wrote the screenplay Gene Pool for the production company Helcon, and later wrote a prequel to the screenplay for a one-shot comic book for uh, IDW Publishing. In uh, 2006, Ween collaborated with writer Kurt Busiek and artist Kelly Jones on the four-issue miniseries Conan: The Book of Thoth. For Dark Horse Comics, from 2005 to 2008, he appeared as a recurring panelist on the Los Angeles-based revival of the TV game show What's My Line. That I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see here. On oh, on April 6, 2009, Ween's California home burned down with considerable loss of property and mementos, including his Shazam Awards. He also lost his dog Sheba to the fire. Tough break. That's. That's awful. Um, now, beginning October 26, 2009, Len Wein's second wife, Christine Vallada, a photographer and attorney, appeared on and won the television game show Jeopardy. She became a four-time champion and won over 60 grand. Wow. Yeah. She indicated on the show that she would use the money to recover or replace much of the artwork and books the couple lost in that fire. Yeah, so if, the, if their day jobs don't work out, they can always do the game show circuit, apparently. They They're, could. That's fine. <laughs> it yeah. works for them. They could do the pub trivia night. Um, yeah, and right around the same time, he had written episodes of the Cartoon Network animated series Ben 10, Alien Force, Ben 10, Ultimate Alien, Ben 10, Omniverse, and the Marvel Superhero Squad. Ween returned to comics writing for DC in the late 2000s, where he collaborated in the DC Comics nostalgic event DC Retroactive, writing stories for the one-shot specials Batman of the 70s, September 2011, drawn by Tom Mandrake, and, Gre and Green Lantern the 80s in October 2011, 
drawn by Joe Staten. Oh, Joe Staten did all that 80s Green Lantern. Too. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a perfect that guy. That one down. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I actually don't know these comics offhand either. I'm surprised. Uh, these are the ones that they, this was like right before the new 52 hit. And I, I remember guess, being yeah. so annoyed by these. Cover day, <laughs> cover day September meant it would be yep. on sale like August, uh, July. So the, the summer of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely want to give those a look. Uh, don't want to give this a look though. In 2012, Ween worked on the Before Watchmen project, writing the miniseries Ozymandias with art by Jay Lee and the serialized feature Curse of the Crimson Corsair with art by Watchmen colorist John Higgins. Ween and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez produced a comics adaptation in 2014 of a Two Faced story written by Harlan Ellison, originally intended for the Batman television series. This came out as Batman 66 The Lost Episode, November 2014. Ween underwent quintuple bypass heart surgery on February twenty February tenth, twenty fifteen, and wrote, then after that wrote a six issue Swamp Thing miniseries yeah. with Kelly Jones on art in twenty sixteen. And at the time of this recording, uh, Len is recovering from successful spinal surgery. Literally, like this morning. Like this morning, he's out yeah. of surgery, but he is. It seems to be okay. His beard was trimmed, and uh, yes, I heard that. he's not thrilled about that, but otherwise he, he seems to be recovering, and of course, we hope he comes to a full recovery. Absolutely. I did see a, a funny tweet from him earlier saying he wished he had Wolverine's healing factor. <laughs> yeah, or at least the adamantium skeleton, something. Why not, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we're going to hop back over to the outside with uh, Mr. Trimp here. Um, among the characters uh, co-created by Trimp during his run on The Incredible Hulk, we have uh, Jim Wilson that first appeared in uh, issue 131, September 1970, and Doc Sampson in issue 141, July 1971. Uh, Herb takes credit for creating the Hulkbusters. He explains, uh, the series writers came up with the major concepts. I was not involved much with the creation of the new characters or new ideas. I didn't want to be. The concept of the Hulkbusters, however, was my idea. I did the schematic diagram of the base. I also designed the unit emblem, which was an H being shattered by a lightning bolt. You remember Thunderbolt was the antagonist General Ross's nickname. Mm-hmm. Uh, the aerial view design of the base as a peace symbol was used purposefully as a design for the Hulkbuster base, but it really wasn't a joke. It was just meant to be the ironic juxtaposition <laughs> of the military base run by an aggressive, blustery general and the military base design being a symbol of peace. It was like in the 60s and 70s when protesters stuck flowers down the barrels of National Guard rifles. It was a provocative gesture. Uh, in 1976, Trimp was uh, one of the anchors of Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, which was an oversized treasury format one-shot written and penciled by Jack Kirby. Was this uh, was this when Jack Kirby came back, or were these old Jack Kirby stories? I think this is when he came back, I when believe. He came back. But, uh, Maybe a mixture of the two. It may be. Uh, Trimp had a year's run on the Defenders from issues 69 to 81. This was March 1979 through March 1980. Uh, In 2002, he recalled that his entry into drawing the Hulk wasn't so smooth. He says, I did like three or four pages, and Stan Lee saw them and made Frank Giacoya? 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 (laughs) Sure. Okay. And made Frank Giacoya do the layouts. Uh, Trim's fourth issue, number 109, uh, November uh, 1968. It wasn't my storytelling. There was a good flow there, but it was too much like EC Comics for Stan. I loved EC, the dark atmosphere and the clean lines of it, but it wasn't right for Marvel. But you could see some influence in the shadowing, I think, in Trim's work. Uh, But definitely, you know, he, he... he curried it up, as we'll say, for Marvel. Sure. <laughs> um, as a Marvel mainstay, Trimp would draw nearly every starring character, including 
Captain America in Captain America number 184 and 291. The Fantastic Four in Fantastic Four Annual number 25 to 26. That was in 1982-83. Uh, Fantastic Four Unlimited number 1 through 12. March 93 to ni- December 95. He drew Iron Man in Iron Man number 39. That was uh, and uh, from 80, numbers 82 to 85 and 93 to 94 in the 1970s plus occasionally others. Drew Kazar in Astonishing Tales 7 through 8, August and October 1971. Nick Fury in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., number 13 to 15, July, November 1969. Thor in Thor Annual, number 15 to 16, 1990 to 91. Ant-Man in Marvel Feature, number 4 through 6. Kill Raven, which was probably the one his brother did, inked, by the way. Mm. Kill Raven in Amazing Adventures, number 20 to 24, and in number 33. Rawhide Kid, Spider-Man, and many more as the regular artist of Marvel Team-Up, number 106 to 118, June 1981 to June 1982, and Marvel Team-Up Annual, number 3 through 4, 1980 to 81. As the artist of Supervillain Team-Up, Trim co-created The Shroud with writer Steve Englehart. So, a lot of, lot of work done there. Mm-hmm. Trip to Marvel Treasury Edition, number 25, 1980. Spider-Man vs. the Hulk at the Winter Olympics, which featured a story set in the 1980 Winter Olympics by writers Mark Grunewald, Stephen Grant, and Bill Mantlo. In the late 1970s to 1980s, Herb Trimp became one of Marvel's licensed properties guy, and his work included... All but issues four through four and five, the twenty-four issue Godzilla, August seventy-seven to July seventy-nine. All but one of the twenty issues of Shogun Warriors. Six issues of the Further Adventures of Indiana Jones. Also writing the last two, GI Joe: A Real American Hero, number one, July eighty-two, and eight other issues. Three of which he he also wrote or co-wrote. Hmm. Nearly the entire run of the twenty-eight issue spin-off GI Joe Special Missions, nineteen eighty-six, nineteen eighty-nine. Three of the four-issue miniseries G.I. Joe, The Order of Battle, uh, 1986-87, and three issues of The Transformers. It's a lot of work. A lot of work there, folks, and I bet uh, anyone who's read Marvel Comics has seen <laughs> some of it. Uh, yeah. he, he passed away on April 13th, 2015, in New York City. Not long ago. No, not too long ago. Okay, now we're going to hop into uh, a character you may have heard of called Wolverine. Uh, let's talk about his, uh, well, not his in-continuity origin, but his actual origin. Yeah. Um, Marvel editor-in-chief Roy Thomas asked writer Len Wein to devise a uh, character specifically named Wolverine, who is Canadian and of small stature and with a Wolverine's fierce temper. Uh, John Romita Sr. Uh, designed the first Wolverine costume. Uh, Romita believes he introduced a retractable clause, saying, When I made a design, I wanted it to be practical and functional. I thought, if a man has claws like that, how does he scratch his nose or tie his shoelaces? It's a fantastic question. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, Wolverine first appeared in the final teaser panel of The Incredible Hulk number 180, October 1974, by Ween and uh, Trimp. Now, this is something that really bugged a lot of collectors and fueled a lot of arguments as to which one was the real first appearance. Uh Uh, I remember uh, I remember arguments in the comic store by people who would never even hope to own either one, complaining about which one was legit. And uh, Wizard Magazine would rouse a little bit more bang for the speculated buck by listing both. They showed, uh, you know, Wolverine cameo uh-huh. in 180 and then Wolverine 1A yeah. in uh, 181. So they could uh, hike the prices up on both and on uh, both of them, yeah, that exactly. market. That's know? great. I would I would sure. definitely personally say 181. I know, you know, he's, <laughs> that one panel reveal is really nothing. But anyway. 
Yes. Uh, now, the character then appeared in a number of advertisements in various Marvel Comics publications before making his first major appearance in, well, you know, the issue we're talking about now. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> in 2009, Trim says he distinctly remembers Romita's sketch, and he says, the way I see it, Romita and writer Len Wein sewed the monsters together, and I shocked it to life. It was just one of those secondary or tertiary characters, actually, that we were using in that particular book with no particular notion of it going anywhere. We did characters in The Incredible Hulk all the time that were in particular issues, and that was the end of them. Uh, now, though often credited as co-creator, Trimp adamantly denied having any role in Wolverine's creation. Yeah, I think that's pretty he's interesting. Just, yeah. yeah, he's just the dude who drew the drew the issue. Yeah, he, I, he totally gives it over to uh, John Romita, and and considering the fact that he does take credit for the Hulkbusters and other ones, I have to you know give it to him. Basically, sure. I, I don't think he would uh, fib about this, and and why would you not take credit? Exactly, for Wolverine, right? if you can help it. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, Wolverine's next appearance was in 1975 Giant Size X-Men number one, written by Weed and penciled by Dave Cockrum. So several years later, uh, mm-hmm. in which Wolverine is recruited for the new squad. Gil Kane illustrated the cover artwork, but incorrectly drew Wolverine's mask with larger headpieces. Dave Cockrum liked Kane's accidental alteration, believing it to be similar to Batman's mask and you know his cowl, and incorporated it into his own artwork for the actual story. Dave Cockrum was the first artist to draw Wolverine without his mask, and the distinctive Twin Peaks sort of two cones coming out the top of his head <laughs> hairstyle became a trademark of the character. A revival of X-Men followed, beginning with X-Men number 94, August 75, drawn by Cockrum and written by Chris Claremont. Yes. Um, now we have uh, some, you know, different sort of origins for Wolverine here. Is more on the creative side. Mm-hmm. We've got a uh, 1973 Marvel held a contest in Foom, which was Friends of Old Marvel. It was the house fanzine. Yeah. They asked for submissions for a new character to be used in Roy Thomas's proposed international revamp of the X Men. They wanted all the characters to be international, and yeah. and you can see by the uh, the lineup in Giant Size that. They were indeed. They did. They they, they followed through. But it, what's funny is Roy Thomas is thinking of it here in 73, and we don't see anything mm-hmm. until 75. For a couple of years, yeah. yeah. Now, the winner of this, incidentally, was um, a fellow by the name Michael A. Barrario. 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 <laughs> Barrero. Uh, <laughs> Barrero. There we go. He created a character called Humus Sapien, who would not appear in an actual comic book story for 28 years. Uh, Humus Sapien would eventually appear in issue number 54 of Thunderbolts in September 1998. Uh, up to the up to that point, there'd been a mystery character built up uh, before the reveal. Uh, if I'm remembering right, Humus was uh, he was like in a chamber, like uh-huh. you saw like a like a profile, like a shadow profile and there was uh, actually you know the, there weren't very many thunderbolts readers at the time comparatively <laughs> but uh, there was a bit of a to-do of a, you know just who this was going to be and it was humus sapien and uh, Barrero uh, himself was enlisted to actually ink a page of that issue that's right i think it was the last page right it was the first i page. think so. maybe yeah. the, maybe it was the reveal yeah and uh and I don't think we've seen Humus Sapien since. No, or Barrero, but that's all right. <laughs> True that. And now, uh, the X-Men were revamped, and they did go international. But again, it wasn't until 75, and that wasn't even written by Roy Thomas. Um, now, in issue two of Foom, artwork from Runners Up was shown, uh, with the winner being revealed in issue number three. One of them was a character named the Wolverine by a fellow by the name Andy Olsen. In uh, comic book Legends Revealed uh, installment number five, I'm sorry, 456, Brian Cronin fairly well dispelled the theory that Marvel took or was inspired by this character. 
Roy asked for his short Canadian character named Wolverine that resembled Olsen's character in name only. And John Romita's designs resemble the design not at all. Yeah, but it's just a little, a little funny little thing that just a little, a, shortly before, you know, the... Uh, mm-hmm. Or around the time of the debut, this other character existed. But anyway, that's sure. just a little aside. There are a little Wolverine tidbits to come up now. Uh, we're really going to talk about the character Wolverine and his <laughs> many multifaceted origin and do the best <laughs> that we can here. Uh, it was revealed in the origin miniseries that Marvel produced to ensure that they told uh, Wolverine's truest origin rather than Hollywood deciding on one first. That He was born James Howlett in Cold Lake, Alberta, Canada during the late 1880s, purportedly to rich farm owners John and Elizabeth Howlett. He was actually the illegitimate son of the Howlett's groundskeeper, Thomas Logan. After Thomas is thrown off the Howlett's property for an attempted rape perpetrated by his other son, named simply Dog, he returns to Howlett Manor and kills John Howlett. The lead-up to the reveal... This doesn't sound very Canadian. Anyway, the the lead-up to the reveal had many eagle-eyed readers believing it would be revealed that the rough-and-tumble dog was Wolvie rather than the tiny and meek James, but it was not to be. In retaliation, young James kills Thomas with bone claws that emerge from the backs of his hands. His mutation manifests... Uh, it should be mentioned that in X-Men Volume 2, number 25, October 93, Magneto rips the adamantium off Wolverine's skeleton. And then it was shown in the next month, Wolverine Volume 2, number 75, November 93, that Wolverine, in fact, had bone claws, and that the claws must have been part of his mutation all along. This is where this portion of his origin shows up, because yeah, before that it was really not 100% clear. It was nebulous, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think Len probably imagined them, the claws being in the gloves. Yeah, um, I think that was part of the uh, what they thought it was, uh, but then they worried that anybody who had the gloves could be Wolverine. Yeah, and I guess they thought it was a lot cooler to make it all part of his uh, mutation. Biology, yeah. Uh, so, previously though, Logan was under the belief that claws had been added by the Weapon X Project, as he had no memory of ever using them before his time in the Weapon X Project. Another popular theory is that when his skeleton was coated with adamantium, mass of it pooled around his wrist hands, ultimately forming the claws. Sure, why not? Uh, sticking with the skeleton, a hint that more than just the claws were made of the stuff popped up fairly early. In X-Men number 116, December 78, after getting bit by a dinosaur in the Savage Land, Wolvie says, It's okay, babe, I heal real fast, and the beast ain't been born that can break my bones. In X-Men number 126, October 79, during the battle with Moira, McTaggart's son Proteus, oh, Moira McTaggart's son Proteus, Mm. a mutant who could leap from body to body as he sees fit. Proteus attempts to take over Wolverine's body, however, as luck would have it, he's allergic to metal. Wolvie says, it ain't just metal, sweetheart, I got a skeleton made of about three million bucks of worth of adamantium. Mm-hmm. Now the Magneto Wolverine, the Fatal Attractions crossover that we took, confrontation that we discussed a little bit ago, that spun out of a joke uh, told by Peter David during the planning for uh, the X Men crossover Executioner song, which would uh, give the book he was writing at the time quite short shrift. Yeah. X Factor. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, not a whole lot of X Factor ing in X Factor. Yeah, it wasn't uh, one one issue that was just a uh, cable. Wolverine. Cable Bishop and Wolverine. And Bishop, yeah, just to kind yep. of drive the point home. Yep, absolutely. Now, uh, Peter David says, uh, this is a quote from him, he says, uh, actually, what happened was that we were all discussing how we were going to have Magneto's return be a big deal. 
The other writers were bouncing around the notion of a huge Magneto Wolverine slugfest, and I said, thinking out loud, boy, you know, if I'm Magneto, I don't even bother with Wolverine. I just yank out his skeleton and be done with him. And there was dead silence for a moment. And then everyone looked at me and said, that's a great idea. And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> and they said, yeah, it'll be a great visual. I said, well, sure, but then he's dead. He can't survive having his entire skeleton ripped out. He has a healing factor. Healing factor? If you rip out his whole skeleton, he's a pile of flesh on the floor. He'll be a healed pile of flesh. What can he do? Ooze it, people? <laughs> <laughs> See, my vision of it was that Magneto ripped out the entire skeleton, not just excises the adamantium that was laced onto it. Uh, figures that my biggest contribution to X-Continuity was simply voicing a passing thought. Um, as mentioned, he also has a healing factor. Yep. Long canine's animal senses. He is not unlike a beast, but he is not the beast. That's right. <laughs> Uh, during his uh, bone claw days in the uh, in the time after fatal attractions here, they would often break off in battle, but his healing factor would regenerate them. That just makes me like gives me the willies. That's like nails yeah. on a chalkboard. Yeesh. Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, Shadowcat, uh, Kitty Pride, actually carried around some of the broken ones to mm. use as weapons. Gross. Um, yeah, pretty gross. <laughs> Back to origin. Uh, young Thomas flees Howlett Manor with his childhood companion, the very red-headed Rose, and grows into manhood on a mining colony in the Yukon, adopting the name Logan. Uh, now, the first time we hear the name Logan was, oddly enough, when a leprechaun at Cassidy Keep referred to him as such <laughs> in X-Men number 103. This is a very weird story, very early in the Claremont run. It wasn't, not everything had clicked just yet. This was uh, February of 77. Uh, none of the other X-Men heard it. So they, this was still a secret to them. Uh, they would not learn it until a few years later with X-Men number 139, November 1980. This features Heather Hudson, who we'll be discussing a bit more later. Uh, she calls him Logan to the surprise to Nightcrawler, to the, to the surprise of Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler asks Wolverine why he never shared his real name with the team, to which Logan responds, You never asked. So there's that. Too cool, that guy. Too cool. Is, he is the, the he's a mixture of Dylan McKay and Fonzie. Sure. Uh, <laughs> now, and he's about as tall as Fonzie. Um, <laughs> when, when Logan accidentally kills Rose with his clothes, he flees the colony and lives in the wilderness among the wolves. He is then captured by the circus. Uh, he tours for a while as a freak, and then he escapes. He's eventually freed by Victor Creed's brother Saul. But this gets complicated. Yeah, that, that's uh, we, a whole other wrinkle. I didn't want to get into. <laughs> we don't need to. We don't need to go down that uh, <laughs> down that that, that spring there. Um, now Logan returns to civilization, residing with the Blackfoot people. Uh, Logan's girlfriend, Silver Fox, is killed by Victor Creed, who is now known as Sabretooth. Hey, and just in time to get over that, he's ushered into the Canadian <laughs> military during World War One. Logan spends his time in Madripoor before settling in Japan, where he marries Itsu and has a son, Dokken. Dokken was introduced during the Wolverine Origins ongoing series in issue number 10, March 2007. He would become Wolverine for Norman Osborn's Dark Avengers during Dark Reign, and Wolverine will be eventually be forced to kill his own son, drowning him in a puddle. He would reemerge as the Horseman of Death for the Apocalypse Twins. Because Wolverine can never catch a break, I don't know if you got that. No. Uh, Wolverine often uses the alias Patch because he, uh, you know, wears an eye patch. So mm -hmm. it's Logan with his same similar build and hairstyle, 
plus an eye patch. Why not? Yep. Why not? Um, uh, so we can tell them apart. That's basically, you know. Uh, during World War II, Logan teams up with Captain America and continues a career as a soldier of fortune. In 1987, Chris Claremont said, The essence of Logan's character is a failed samurai. To samurai, duty is all. Selfless service, the path, their ultimate ambition, death with grace. He serves with the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion during D-Day and later with the CIA before being recruited by Black Ops until Team X, a unit Team X. As a member of Team X, Logan is given false memory implants. Team X also included Victor Creed and Christoph Nord, who we might know better as Maverick. Then, then again, we might not. We might not know him. Uh, <laughs> I like the name. I don't remember Maverick, but I, I do know Sabretooth, so that's something. Yes. Eventually, breaking free of his mental control, he joins the Canadian Defense Ministry. Logan is like, he, he does not mind joining organizations. You notice that? He's big. Yeah. He's a big uh, joiner. Yep. Uh, Logan is subsequently kidnapped by the Weapon X program, where he remains captive and experimented on until he escapes. It's sort of what he does. Uh, it is during his imprisonment by Weapon X that he has his adamantium forcibly fused onto his bones. It was revealed during Grant Morrison's run on New X-Men that Weapon X was actually meant to be read as Weapon 10, part of the Weapon Plus program, you know, Roman numerals and all that. Of note, Weapon 1 had to do with Captain America. Of minor interest, Weapon 3's experiments having to do with animals fueled some internet rumblings that the Morrison Quietly We 3 Vertigo miniseries was initially planned as a Marvel project, which mm -hmm. is neither here nor there, really. No. no I just didn't know when we'd ever mention it again. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely. No. <laughs> now, uh, Logan begins work as an intelligence operative for the Canadian government's Department H, which is the department that will assemble Alpha Flight, which who we will get to in a moment. Mm. Uh, he becomes Wolverine, one of Canada's first superheroes. This is when we first meet him. Uh, now later, Professor Charles Xavier recruits Wolverine to a new iteration of his superhero mutant team, the X-Men. Uh, it was later revealed that Wolverine had been sent to assassinate Xavier, who wiped Logan's memories and forced him to join the team. Uh, this was revealed in X-Men Original Sin, which ran through Wolverine Origins and X-Men Legacy during the fall of 2008. Uh, Logan is fluent in English, Japanese, Russian, Chinese, Cheyenne, Spanish, Arabic, and Lakota. He also has some knowledge of French, Filipino, Thai, Vietnamese, Italian, Korean, Hindi, Persian, German, and Portuguese. I, it's, I, it's interesting, though. I mean, and it comes up in the comics, obviously, quite a mm -hmm. lot. But, you know, I think he, you know, comes off as a kind of a brute, but he actually mm -hmm. is quite learned person. He's been around. Yep. He knows what's going on. He's a violent poet. Uh, <laughs> now, when, when Forge monitors Wolverine's vital signs during a Danger Room training session, which takes place in Wolverine Volume 2, Number 51, February 92, he calls Logan's physical and mental state equivalent of an Olympic-level gymnast performing a gold medal routine while simultaneously beating four chess computers in his head. <laughs> Okay. So he's basically Fonzie. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to see the meter. Like, what is it? It goes from zero to Olympic level chess play. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, what the... And I'd like to see who Forge. What is his? What is his bar of comparison? Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we got uh, Carl Lewis is on there. We got Michael's Michael Spitz anyway. We got the what's his face? The uh, Bobby Fisher's there. Bobby Fisher's on there. You know, and he blew them all away. So he's going right into the red of that of that VU meter. <laughs> now, uh, Wolverine's also a heavy drinker and smoker. Uh, his healing powers negate the long-term effects of alcohol and tobacco, and they allow him to indulge in prolonged binges. Uh, he appears to uh, to prefer canned beer, probably Canadian. 
Uh, he's actually an anti-smoking advocate for folks without the benefit of healing hoodoo. Yeah. That's good. Just like my grandmother, you know, she used to smoke five <laughs> packs a day and tell me not to smoke. It was like, there hey, you well, go. Well, you know, did she like, have a healing factor? <laughs> she sure didn't. I'll tell you what, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll leave that where it is now. What about Wolverine's second secret origin? Oh, my goodness. Another secret origin. Chris Claremont and Dave Cochran planned on Wolverine being revealed to, to be an evolved Wolverine cub due to the high evolutionary. This was hinted at in X-Men number 98, April of 1976, when Dr. Scott Lang is examining Wolverine, and an assistant questions whether Wolverine is a mutant because his readings are unusual. This is also the issue where we learn Wolverine's retractable claws are part of his anatomy. Uh, more animal senses hints would pop up over the years. In X-Men number 100, August 1976, Wolverine is battling with a robot duplicate of Jean Grey, during which he says, You see, folks, I'm like an animal. I don't know from faces. I know from scents, voices, feelings. I also know Jean Grey. And lady, whatever you are, you ain't Jean Grey. In X-Men number 106, February 1977, while fighting psychic illusions, he says, It's like my senses are telling me that he's, referring to Iceman, here. But he ain't here. And uh, just so you know, the high evolutionary is Herbert Edgar Wyndham, born in Manchester, England, and he evolved stuff. First appeared in The Mighty Thor, number 134, November 1966. Now, a year later, uh, after this idea in 76, uh, Spider-Woman debuted in Marvel Spotlight number 32, February 1977, and she turned out to get a blood transfusion by spiders affected by the high evolutionary, which sort of took that off the table for Wolverine. Despite the, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's a terrible idea. Yeah, it's exactly like, a, oh, well, <laughs> if anything, I'd say Wolverine dodged a bullet here, but all right. Big time, big yeah. time. Now, uh, John Byrne confirms that Wolverine's original beginnings were, in fact, uh, in Comics Journal uh, from 1980. He says, you see, we're already on our second origin for Wolverine. The first origin was concocted. The first origin that was concocted was that he was actually a mutant Wolverine boosted up to a human form by the high evolutionary. Okay, that works except that Archie did a similar number in the first Spider-Woman story. And no matter how much how things have changed in that strip since, the idea has been done before, so we dropped it. Uh, character co-creator Len Wein, however, denies this in 2009. He says, while I readily admit that my original idea was for Wolvie's, origin, for Wolvie's claws to extend from the backs of his gloves, I absolutely did not ever intend to make Logan a mutated Wolverine. I write stories about human beings, not evolved animals, with apologies for any story I may have written that involved the high evolutionary. Uh, the mutated Wolverine thing came about long after I was no longer involved with the book. I'm not certain if the idea was first suggested by Chris Claremont, the late, much-missed Dave Cockrum, or John Byrne when he came aboard as artist, but it most certainly did not start with me. Uh, whatever the case, Wolverine is just a plain old mutant super whatever <laughs> with yeah. a skeleton covered in adamantium. That's right. Not actually sharing any DNA with a Wolverine. Uh, Thankfully. To date. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that uh, could change. A, a character story still being written, so we can't, can't promise anything. <laughs> now, uh, as if two origins weren't enough, let's let's head to the third. <laughs> On his website, Burn Robotics, John Byrne said that he drew a possible face Wolverine, but then learned that Dave Cockrum had already drawn him unmasked in X-Men 98, long before Byrne's run on the series started. Uh, later, Byrne used the drawing for the face of Sabretooth, an enemy of the martial artist superhero Iron Fist, whose uh, stories Chris Claremont was writing. Uh, Sabretooth would first appear in Iron Fist number 14, cover date August 1977. 
Byrne then conceived the idea of, of Sabretooth maybe being Wolverine's father, which was something they actually played with in the first uh, few years of the Wolverine's uh, ongoing. Uh, Chris Claremont would actually trot this out for his on, uh, his out of continuity X Men Forever disaster in the uh, in the late 2000s. It was uh, not a not a very uh, no. I didn't like it. It, okay. was, uh, it was basically it was basically what would happen if Chris Claremont never left the X Men in 1991. Oh, I you know. I think I've heard about this. That's right. Yeah, and it sort of <laughs> picks up where he should have left off. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> now, together, uh, Byrne and Claremont came up with Wolverine being approximately 60 years old and having served in World War II after escaping from Sabretooth, who they would say was approximately 120 years old. This one, as far as we can tell, is as close to canon as we're going to get. That's right. I'm not 100% positive about the, no. up to the second, <laughs> but uh, as far as I know. Yes. Uh, now, uh, it's interesting that Claremont and Cockrum talked about dropping Wolverine entirely from the X-Men. Uh, Cockrum preferred Nightcrawler himself. That was his big character, yeah. yeah. Uh, the pair felt that Thunderbird and Wolverine were too similar, even somewhat redundant in power set and attitude and personality. Thunderbird would perish in a battle with Count Nefaria in X-Men number 95. Right, Co just a couple months after Gi Giant Size. Oh yeah, just uh, they, yeah. they knew they knew they had to get rid of one of them, and I guess that <laughs> that was Thunderbird had to go. Uh, Cockrum's successor, artist John Byrne, championed Wolverine, later explaining that as a Canadian himself, he did not want to see a Canadian character dropped. Byrne modeled his rendition of Wolverine on actor Paul D'Amato, who played Doctor Hook in the 1977 sports film Slapshot, which is a pretty yeah. funny movie if you ever want to see it. <laughs> Uh, John Byrne also created Alpha Flight, a group of Canadian superheroes who try to recapture Wolverine due to the expense their government incurred training him. They premiered in X-Men number 120, April 1979, and these are the guys that came out of Department H, right, you were talking mm -hmm. about, Weapon yep. H? <clears throat> Excuse me. They had their own series with their first volume running 130 issues from 1983 to 1994. Despite something of a cult following, their subsequent volumes were not nearly as successful. Byrne also designed a new brown and tan costume for Wolverine, but retained the distinctive Cockrum cowl, which Jim Lee gleefully dumped when he got the pencil, something he proudly told Byrne, not realizing he had designed it. That's yeah, nice. He's like, I got rid of that, all, that awful brown costume. Yeah, that probably endeared him to John Byrne, not at all. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> now, Wolverine's growing popularity led to a solo four-issue Wolverine miniseries, and that was uh, from September through December 1982. It was written by Chris Claremont with art by Frank Miller. It's got a that very iconic cover where yeah. he's kind of got his claws up and he's giving you the come-hither finger. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, the uh, this is a miniseries that Chris Claremont was allegedly against at first, uh, fearing it would overexpose the character, which is kind of why he takes him completely out of his element for it. Um, a couple years later, we have a six-issue, awful, six-issue Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries by Chris Claremont with Al Milgram. This was November 1984 through April 1985. I just want to note here that both of these miniseries, Claremont actually wrote Wolverine out of yep. Uncanny X-Men. He was not in the, on the, in the book, yeah, at the time. Yep. Yeah, so he was not doing double duty. Continuity was tight. And I miss that a lot. <laughs> well, it helps. Now, it helps when you write both books. Though, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that is probably a lot to do with it, yeah. and, and and under Jim Shooter's thumb is probably Absolutely. another point to do That's with it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, now, Marvel launched an ongoing solo book written by Claremont with art by John Buscema in November 1988, and this one ran for almost 200 issues, 189 issues. Uh, Larry Hama was one of the main writers of it. He uh, he had a very long run on it. 
Now, other writers who wrote for the several Wolverine ongoing series include Peter David, Archie Goodwin, Eric Lawson. Which uh, Chris pointed out that for much of his run, he wasn't even writing Wolverine. Instead, he was writing a scroll who was posing as Wolverine. He made special effort to ensure there were no thought balloons or narration boxes for this bit. Uh, this scroll, the scroll Wolverine would die at the end of Astonishing X-Men, the three-issue miniseries, not the Joss Whedon vanity project. The real Wolverine was abducted by Apocalypse that had transformed into the Horseman of Death just in time for the decades in the making the Twelve storyline. During this, his time away, he got his adamantium back, and he also had another big fight with the Hulk in the adjectiveless Hulk number eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, other writers here, we have Frank Thierry, Greg Rucka, Mark Miller, who, among other things, would write the uh, Old Man Logan. Yeah. Um, Greg Hurwitz. Uh, we also have many artists who have worked on the series, including John Byrne, Gene Colan, Mark Silvestri, Mark Texiera, Adam Cubitt, Lionel Francis Yu, Rob Liefeld, Sean Chen, Derek Robinson, uh, Derek Robertson, uh, John Romita Jr., and Umberto Ramos. Um, Wolverine's background has also been expanded in the story series uh, Weapon X by writer-artist Barry, writer-artist Barry Windsor Smith. This was serialized in the, uh, in the I think it was weekly, how Marvel Comics presents, either weekly or bi-weekly. Wow. Uh, this was uh, issues 19, I'm sorry, this was issues 72 through 84. This was all during uh, 1991. Uh, here it was alluded that Apocalypse might have had something to do with the uh, the experiment, which was being conducted by a Dr. Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius would receive a phone call from a benefactor. Um, now, this would sort of be expanded upon in the prestige format Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, was, which was written by Walt Simonson with uh, Mike McNola on art. That came out, uh, I guess this was retroactive here, because this was 1990. Hmm. Um, and, you know, more Wolverine, uh, solo Wolverine action in Origin. We had that six-issue limited series by uh, co-writers Joe Quesada, Paul Jenkins, and Bill Jemis, with artist Andy Kubert. This ran from November 2001 through July 2002. Uh, Marvel eventually would capitalize on the strength of the Origin brand when they wrote that part of Marvel, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Marvel but Origin. Later, yes. <laughs> but then years later, they launched uh, a second Wolverine ongoing title, which was Wolverine Origins, which was, and that was written by Daniel Way with art by Steve Dillon, and it was mostly terrible. Hmm. Um in 2013, Marvel released a sequel to Origin called Origin 2. <laughs> <laughs> that was written by Kieran Gillen with art by Adam Kubert. I have it. I've never read it. Yeah. I never felt you, the need to read well, it. Origin 2, it doesn't sound... So it sounds yeah. wrong about it, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, following the X-Men schism event, which was totally not a sales gimmick and totally didn't reboot everything for no reason at all, uh, the title Wolverine and the X-Men was launched, in which Wolverine became the headmaster of the now Jean Grey School for Gifted Youngsters. Oh, right. I actually remember that. Uh, yeah, that wasn't even that long ago, was it? Yeah, that was Jason Aaron and yeah. Chris Bocciolo, uh, 2011. I think I, I think I actually read the first issue of that. Um, it was good stuff. Yeah, I just didn't, I didn't go along because... Can't read everything, folks. Uh, Wolverine died in the Death of Wolverine event in 2014, and then there were or are several Wolverines, and now he's back, I think. Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Is I he? think. I'm not sure. I really, I'm not 100% sure. You, that's if a, he's not now, he will be soon. He now. will be soon. He can always, he's right around the corner, folks, as you can tell. <laughs> uh, it's hard to keep a good Wolverine down, and it is nice that there's a couple of things out there to read. 
uh, sure. with Wolverine in them in in the interim. If you get if you feel like you need to check them out, it seems like you could spend three, even... <laughs> three lifetimes even... reading it. You know, geez. what's even better is there's a lot of stuff now that you can read where he's not in it, which is <laughs> new. That's, that's true. Yeah, that's a, a lot of stuff. Yeah, where he's not carrying the whole thing on his back. But, you know, he didn't just conquer the comic book, the Marvel Comics world. He's also one of the few X-Men characters appearing in every media adaptation of mm -hmm. the X-Men franchise, including film, television, and video games. He has starred in video, he has starred in video games. I want to mention he's been in every X-Men game. Yeah. But the ones that he's starred in are the eponymous game for the Nintendo Entertainment System in 91, Wolverine Adamantium Rage for the Sega Genesis and NES in 93, X-Men Wolverine's Rage for the Game Boy Color in 2001. X2, which I assume is based on the movie Wolverine's mm. Revenge for GameCube, Game Boy Advance. The Mac, PC, PlayStation 2, Xbox, that was in 2003. And X-Men Origins Wolverine for Nintendo DS, PC, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, PlayStation Portable, Wii, Xbox 360, and that was in 2009. Mm. Australian actor Hugh Jackman has played Wolverine in nine X-Men films, and he claims that his most recent one is his last appearance in, as Wolverine titled Logan. It's in theaters now, and it's, from what I have read, blowing up the box office. Doing uh, pretty good. Yeah, I, I do plan to see this. I don't know if I'm going to make it to the theater. I know that you legally are not allowed to watch movies. I'm not. So no, I will no. let you know how, uh, how it is when <laughs> I get around to it. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, it's kind of a... A lull in movie time, and this this is uh, not not to not to denigrate the movie at all. It is mm. blowing up the box office. It made a hundred million in its first weekend, I think. Yep. Uh, worldwide. Much to Marvel's chagrin, I'm sure. Uh, they're not. They're 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 like you know, happy, sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like kind of all these smiling, crying types. It's like I guess killing them didn't didn't fix anything. Yeah, exactly. They're like what? They, don't they know he's dead? <laughs> Don't you know we ripped his skeleton out? I believe that's how he actually died too. And when Lemire did it, isn't it that he got? Or... He was coated in it. Oh, that's right. He got yeah. covered in adamantium. That's yep. the other way around. So he got like uh, trapped forever. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, but you know, I know people out there that listen to this are reading Marvel. If you would like to let us know if Wolverine is alive and well or not, <laughs> or if we should send uh, flowers to his home. I didn't even know he was sick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, help us out a little bit here. Write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can also read our writings uh, pretty much every week on weirdsciencedccomics.com. Follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I say it every week, but this week is a little bit different, although this is the second week we'll be saying this. Uh, you have a new website. Chris is on infiniteearths.com. You dropped the blog spot. I did. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's same place. I believe if you still have the other one bookmarked, it'll go to the right it'll place. It'll redirect. So, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't worry about <laughs> changing your routine, but your routine should involve seeing reading this site every day. <laughs> and I would talk about what's on it, except that I don't know what's going to be on it the week that we are, this is going to come out. So anyway, take my word for it, a new DC Comics every single day, uh, an issue of a DC comic, everything from, you know, recent, you know, Rebirth stuff, Convergence mm -hmm. stuff you've done. Uh, you've also been going back into the Silver Age. It's been a real like, great mishmash, and I've been loving it a lot lately. So <laughs> thank you. definitely go check it out. But uh, I think that's all we got for him this week. Chris, you got anything else for him? No, I think that'll do us. Well, until... I'm, I'm Wolver out. You're, that's it. You're, you're all Wolvered up here. Uh, well, until next week, I want you all to keep it on the treadmill, smashingly puny humans. See ya.
God.